Welcome to Demystifying Tech, a business cloud podcast which examines the impact of technology on industry and wider society. In each episode, a technologist from one of the UK's most innovative companies will break down a key area of tech and offer practical takeaways for your business. In this episode, we are joined by two companies which featured in our FinTech 50 ranking who will offer their take on the state of UK FinTech. GFA Exchange uses AI to identify risk in B2B finance and has a clear mission around financial inclusion while Collective simplifies the money collection and payment process. Welcome to both Joe Blake, OBE, and Pete Casson. Hi, good morning, good morning. Pleasure to be here this morning. Fabulous. Morning, John. We've got two businesses here based in Birmingham and Manchester, and absolutely fascinated to hear how UK fintech is important to the whole UK as well as London. And also, I'm pleasure, it's a pleasure to introduce my co-host, Zoe Clark from Taito. Hi, Zoe. Hi there, great to be here. Thanks for having me. So let's dive straight into it. So first of all, Joel, how does the GFA exchange assess risk? You know, tell me a little bit about your business, you know, your kind of reasons for founding the business, and also a little bit about that financial inclusion mission. Yeah, sure. Um, so in a former life, I co-founded an SME lending company. Um, literally sat in a pub with two friends, came up with the idea applied for some funding, got the funding and turned into a £10 million pot of funding over five years to fund SMEs. Um, we funded about 700 companies across the UK before we found a bit of a niche that I that I wanted to scratch because we could see that we were lending to great businesses, but there were so many that we say no to because they didn't fit our credit risk model. They didn't fit the the pattern that we wanted to, to find within businesses that we wanted to fund. Um, it was a great business, but I, I wanted to scratch that itch. So I, I exited the company to, to basically look at how technology could be used to democratize access to finance for all businesses, regardless of size, sector, founder, location, etc. Um, and so it's really about trying to create a little bit more fairness within the risk process when it comes to lending. That's essentially why, why I left. I mean, prior to starting up that, that lending business, I'd spent 12 years as a diversity consultant as well. Um, so I was kind of bringing those two worlds together, in, if you like, the EDI and the finance piece. Um, but the business was was really a, about trying to find a very simple way to do that. So not be a lender ourselves, not be a credit risk you know, business ourselves, but to provide added value to those who are already lending. And so we, we essentially designed our own kind of AI scoring model, which sits within the heart of our technology. Um, and we essentially benchmark and monitor the health of a business within a lender's loan book, because health is the one thing that all lenders want to find, you know, a healthy growing business with the best potential for growth, regardless of the type of lender, whether it's a tier one high street bank, whether it's a new digital lender or whatever, they all want to find a healthy growing business. That's how they get their return. So we decided just to home in on, on that business health element in order to create the scalability in our business, if I'll be honest as well, which was about making sure we could be sector agnostic over time, but really focus on lending as our primary market. So yes, it was really about trying to find a way of providing that, that financial inclusion. And we've been able to achieve that because every business that we monitor on behalf of our clients all come through the same door, so to speak. So they all get benchmarked in the same way. They all come through the system in the same way. They all get measured in the same way. But what we do is create a three-digit score, which represents their health and performance. So I think of it as a as a as an alternative credit risk model, if you like. 
focus purely on the health of a business. And, and that's what makes us different. And that just allows us to focus on inclusion. Who are you sort of selling that product into? Who, who are the, the, who takes that credit risk model and then uses it to kind of decide whether to lend to a business? But ironically, we now work with banks. <laughs> um, Post-pandemic, uh, in fact, we built the business just before the pandemic went to market in February 2020. COVID hit in March 2020. Um, so we took the business off the commercial market and just spent the pandemic building the product out with the financial market as they were going through their disruption. And I think that was something that was really important for us was to make sure that we're building a product that the market wants and validating that before we focus on commerciality. And that was our saving grace as a startup um, launching in that time because we came out of the pandemic with a commercially viable product and we became profitable in our first six months of actually trading um, as a fintech company and our first client was a bank and so from our perspective banking is our primary but because we are sector agnostic we are having conversations within the investment and the wealth management space as well um, and we'll just see how how the future goes from there. Okay, so we're going to get into the, the state of UK fintech and, and delve a little more into the business as, as we go through. But I'd like to bring in Pete now. Now, Pete, you were CTO of Twinkle. I remember interviewing you a few years ago in Sheffield um, as part of a Sheffield Digital event. And about two years after that, maybe, I saw that you set up this new business with Amy Whittle. And Collective is a it's a tool which simplifies the money collection process, doesn't it? So if you're ordering pizza yeah. with friends or I don't know, getting cricket tickets or whatever it may be, it kind of simplifies that being able to just pay without having to add loads of payment details, et cetera. Is that, is that a fair description? Of the yeah, business? it's exactly. It was born out of um, a real world problem. So Amy and I, as you mentioned, worked previously together at Twinkle um, and Amy is the habitual organizer. She organizes everything and everyone um, without even kind of thinking about it. If someone's birthday is coming up or um, if the team could do with uh, meeting up and going out for a few drinks or just going out for a social evening or whatever, then she is the one who would organize it and get it sorted. Um, but what that means is that you take on quite a burden of admin and general organizing of those events. It's not simple bringing even five people together for an event, let alone 10, 15, 20 people. Um, and those events cost money. So you need to collect money from people and you then need to pay for that event. And Amy was repeatedly out of pocket. There was a bunch of people who would, who who didn't have the cash at that point or whatever, or, or didn't go to the cash point to get that cash out and give them the money for, the, for that event or that um, activity or present. So she had a bunch of IOUs that would never be fulfilled. So the amount of drinks, the amount of cash that Amy's owed is is probably four, at least four figures. Um, there's a couple of birthdays of gifts that she was hundreds of pounds out of that she contributed because she was people committed that amount but never physically gave her the money to do it so essentially she got fed up um and kind of sick and tired of being out of pocket and we looked for a digital solution to try and make this easy we thought it's this is back in 20 2018 2019 and we're trying to think by now there must be a solution that allows you to to do this the kind of tech has moved on a bit we've got apple pay google pay we've got those type of payment mechanisms is there anything that, that does it and there just wasn't we tried to prove that there was a solution so that we could kind of ignore the problem and just move on um but we couldn't and we saw that there was a potential gap in the market for a solution that allows groups to contribute and come together and spend together <clears throat> i mean it's a bit different than the 
kind of, I can send you £10. That's really easy. That's really straightforward. But you don't know what that £10 for, how much you've got with other people that have contributed in. It get mixed in with your personal money. It's a real pain to administer. So we've created a solution that we don't care who you bank with. We're totally agnostic with that. We People trying to um, get everyone uh, using the same bank account is near impossible. Right? Trying to get all your mates on Monzo, for example. You're not going to get them to go sign up, go through a KYC process, go through do all the checks and everything else, get a card, and then you can then send them £10. That just isn't going to happen. So we created a solution whereby only the organizer needs to be on our platform and everyone else, as long as they've got some kind of card, whether it's debit or credit card, can then just contribute straight into that pot without having to sign up or anything. So the barrier to pay is taken away totally. So me as a as as, as a contributor or someone that doesn't organize, I, I, I will attend and I'll pay. To be honest, I was just lazy. I couldn't be bothered to go to the cash point and get £10 out, even though it was just down the street. It was it was a it was a barrier, it was a friction. But having to be able to just do it on my phone, I've got no excuses. Also, there's a little bit of peer pressure within your group as well, knowing that you can see people are paying into this point. It's like, okay, I need to contribute into this as well. So you've got that in there. And we've just tried to as much as possible remove the barriers for the organizer to get the job done and actually so that they can enjoy the experience as opposed to it just being this admin overhead that they've got to manage. So mm-hmm. so Amy's friends are all kind of, you know, first in the pub, last to the bar. I, I should say actually <laughs> that Amy, Amy was COO of, of Twinkle as well. So you both you guys were both in, in this you know, yeah. massive ed tech company. Did you did you see yourself as a bit of an entrepreneur, you know, before that? Or did you just think, oh, I'm, you know, I'm the CTO and the guy in the background sort of like overseeing the tech? You know, was it was it a an expected transition into founding a business? I've always had a desire for probably about 10 or 15 years to, to found my own company. I just never found what it was going to be. Um, and I spent all that time kind of looking for something to create and build. But I think the best businesses come out of real world situations and and you see the opportunity rather than trying to forge something that probably just isn't there. Um, so I always looked for um, the, the the opportunity and the chance to create a business. And this kind of presented itself. And when we went out to try and disprove the fact that this, this needs to even exist and we couldn't, it kind of leapt out of kind of going, OK, maybe there is something here. Maybe there's a an opportunity here that we can jump on. Um and that we can kind of hopefully become first to market and kind of take the space um, as soon as possible on that. So I wouldn't necessarily say myself as, as an entrepreneur as such, but um, I am someone who I, I essentially kind of like a fixer. I see a problem and I try and sort it out. That's 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 my remit. Um, regardless of whether it's in a sector I've been in before or not, I see a problem and kind of go, okay, what's the solution to try and sort this out? Um, and being in, in in tech now for about 20 odd years, my whole philosophy around technology is to make it invisible. So you shouldn't know you're using it. It should just get out of the way. It should aid you and enable you. It shouldn't be a hindrance. So that's kind of, and it's what we've taken into collective as well, is trying to make the technology work for the person rather than trying to make it just a mechanism that you have to go through. It's just a more of a natural experience. Yeah. We're going to uh, to Bulgaria for my brother-in-law's 40th birthday. He doesn't know about it, so hopefully he's not going to watch the YouTube <laughs> video or listen to the podcast. Uh, but yeah, I need to get on collective to, to organize that. Zoe, let's... You know, let me bring you in here. You're going to have loads of questions to ask these guests as the co-host. But first of all, just to introduce you a bit, you've got a long experience in, in B2B fintech and financial services. Can you just give me a little flavor of, of some of the work that you've done? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Um, 
Yeah, I'm always surprised when I sort of say to myself that, yeah, the term fintech, I don't feel old enough, really, to say that the term fintech didn't really exist when I started working in this field, which is a bit crazy, really. It was definitely, you know, financial services and technology was was uh, when I started out in the sector. Um, but yeah, over that last sort of 15, 20 years or so, I've worked with various startups, um, of, you know, looking at sort of different factors of the, of the fintech ecosystem right through to large organizations. Um, I, used, I used to work in-house at RBS as well as for various PR agencies as well. So um, I've seen it from um, various different aspects, let's say. But I suppose I am a communicator at heart. I'm not a, a technologist or a fintech expert. So I'm always interested to see firsthand the people who work directly in the sector. And I guess... One thing I'm picking up from today is is that it really seems at the moment, at least for both of you, that what you're both working on is really something that help, helps the end user directly. You know, to me at the moment, it all seems to be about um, that. You mentioned it, uh, Pete, frictionless, you know, removing that friction, tailoring offers, personalizing offers, things like that. I suppose I'd be quite interested as to where we go next with this chat to dig into a bit more about how the fintech ecosystem has evolved over time and think that, you know, uh, do, how do you see that? How do you see that things in fintech have changed over the years? Do you think we've moved away from more of the infrastructure challenges that maybe existed to get fintech innovation up and running to begin with? And now it's all more focusing on that, those kind of end user um, personalized sort of offerings and things, or is there still a lot to do on all aspects? Um. I think uh, I think we're moving away from finance and moving towards tech. I think it's probably the best way of putting it, especially in the last decade. So it's still very much fintech is still very much entrenched by the banks. They they own the sector. They own what you do. They are the core of definitely the British banking sector, but pretty much the obviously the global sector as well from from fintech perspective. But what you are seeing now are the major tech companies engrossing into their markets and actually disrupting those markets so you look at the likes of apple you see google you've got paypal you've got those organizations that are taking market share away from those banks now if you look at apple pay apple is in a very very powerful position a very unique position to be able to control spending globally and you see now that basically the the number one way of paying especially on e-commerce is via wallets and apple pay is kind of leading that that way on that and that whole frictionless experience you no longer know which card you're using to pay. You don't care which pay card you're paying. You're just staring at your phone and then tapping it and then job done. The move, movement away from um, kind of the, the typical kind of Visa MasterCard from that side of things is becoming a little bit grayer. And you're going to see tech companies, in particular the likes of Apple and Google with the mobile tech and everything else, um, and obviously X or Twitter or kind of what what, what it's called this week is, is moving towards into the payment sector as well. Um, then you're going to see tech companies taking more control of payments in particular and banking in particular, um, then and probably innovate much, much faster than you're going to see the legacy banking inst institutions move. And you're seeing that already. And it'll be very, very interesting to see what those um, what the big banks do in order to keep up, really, in order to uh, still remain relevant and not allow the likes of Apple or Google or even PayPal um, to kind of take over from them. If you look at, I mean, even just take Starbucks, for example, randomly, they wouldn't be in fintech. If you look at the cash that they have from their gift cards, they're the largest bank in the world. 
And that's incredible. The, the coffee shop is the largest bank in the world because of the gift cards that they use. So the way that we pay for things has changed. Um, and if we're not careful, or if the banks aren't careful, then they're going to be left behind and they are not going to be kind of the, the default way that we do payments in the future. It's, it's going to be led by tech. What sort of stage are we at with this kind of open finance revolution then? Because obviously open banking came along, connected up, you know, various providers, you know, like where you know, people like Joel and their company, his company, they can all connect that data in. But open finance is something different, isn't it? How do we define it? Who wants to come in on that one? <laughs> Joel, in you go. Yeah, cheers. Uh, what I find interesting about that side is because I'm looking at this as a non-technologist running a tech company. So I, I wasn't involved in the world of technology before starting this business. And, and, and so the way I've looked at it is things like open financing provides the opportunity to get better intelligence from the data that you get through those mediums. And, and so I'm, and I completely agree with everything that Pete's absolutely said. And I think just to compliment that, it's more for me about, okay, so what happens with the results of all these different innovations? So what happens with the data? What happens with the intelligence that you use? So I think things like open financing, open banking, all these innovations are great, but it's always going to be about actionable intelligence that you get from the results of using these types of mediums. Um, and, and so for me, I'm seeing a convergence of three things, effectively, of, of kind of diversity in all its forms, data and digital technologies, or you know what, what we like to call in-house the 3D effect you know, because if, if you're bringing wider diversity in terms of thinking, reducing bias in the design of technologies, if you're bringing new models, patterns, processes, and systems, that's going to relieve and release new data sets that are more diverse by nature, which then draws out more intelligence, more diverse intelligence about your markets, about suppliers, customers, whomever then you have the onslaught of innovative digital technologies that can take that intelligence into different places again. And I think that's just an interesting convergence that we're certainly seeing through our eyes of which FinTech has a massive part to play. Mm -hmm. um, but it also means the FinTech technologies themselves have to be designed with these types of convergences and these changes in mind. And I think that's gotta be one of the biggest challenges historically, a challenge for what I've seen in terms of having that inclusivity within the design of fintech itself. And I see that being an ongoing issue that might actually, in some ways, halt the progress that fintech can actually create um, if it's not done um, in, in the right way. So do you really think what we're seeing at the moment is just sort of the tip of the iceberg? Do you think there's a whole heap more we could be doing? As, as someone who's relatively new into the space, been able to create something that's created a bit of a, a niche and a bit of a dent mm -hmm. and bringing a different view and perspective on that from the beginning um, in terms of not coming from a technology background, coming from a how do you apply it commercial, real kind of actionable approach to it. So yeah, I do think we're at the tip of a, a, an iceberg and I just think things will be accelerated, but the technology itself needs to be designed in mind. And just historically I've seen, especially from larger banking organizations, bias has been woven into the design of technology which has then halted progress in some areas and i just think where we are in the world now with things like esg as well and the, the way in which social impact is coming into commercial strategy that's going to change the way in which fintech is designed in the future i've seen yeah, a few i think there's oh, sorry, sorry. 
Yeah, I was just going to say, the thing there's there's still a huge barrier to entry though in fintech. Like for a startup to get into fintech, it, you, you've got to raise some money or you've got to be in the set or you've got to know someone um, or hope you can find those connections pretty sharpish um, because there is still that that barrier. I mean, uh, Joe, I don't, I don't know from your side working with the banks of B2B, but I dare say there's probably a ton of compliance and checks and everything else that you have to go 100%. through. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, to, to work with those guys and it's it's great when those contracts land because they're, they're they're the big deals, but those take six to twelve months probably to to go through that sales cycles before. And so you've got to survive that period and actually get a product that's worked and, and is compliant and works with their old technology as well and all the rest of it and things. So there's huge barriers to entry, and it's interesting hearing from from Joel's side from the B two B perspective because obviously we're much more consumer side of things and hearing the the whole open banking piece. We're we're constantly being pressured as a business where we've had open banking kind of just thrown at us and kind of go, you need to adopt open banking, you need to adopt it, you need to adopt it. Just doesn't work for the consumer. Totally doesn't work for the consumer. It works brilliantly for businesses. And I can see exactly how it works fantastically for that environment. But paying as a consumer using open banking is an absolute nightmare. You've got no control over as a, as a, um, as a company, as a B2C business, that experience, we want to try and make it as frictionless as possible at the point where they hit, yeah, I want to pay via my bank, you lose that experience. And every bank is doing it in their own way. Some are good. Most are pretty terrible. And you, you see huge drop-offs in conversion rates with regards to open banking. So open banking as a standard and as a concept is a very good idea. Its execution has been pretty poor. And it's feeling now like they're driving that in to... to to make sure that it's not a failure as a thing, because the, the concept's right. And we're starting to see consumer level tech companies adopt it. And you've recently started seeing Apple adopt it in Apple Pay, for example, to be able to give you quick glances on your balance and your card without having to go into your banking app. As soon as Apple or Google adopt open banking as a payment mechanism for consumers, you'll see open banking rocket. And they overnight people, I think you'll see us adopt more of a European style where you're paying via your bank than rather your debit or credit card. But until that happens in, in, in Britain, we're still going to be paying via debit or credit card at the moment. And open banking is going to be a business only really solution that is great for that solution, but isn't built for the consumer at all. Why, why do you think it's not built for the consumer? Can you give me a practical example of, of where that doesn't work for the consumer? Yeah. So I think when it first came out a few years ago, you saw a influx of apps that would bring all of your banking accounts together. So you can got a nice kind of one single pane of glass. You can see a top down view of, of those of your financial situation across all the bank accounts you've got. Those have pretty much disappeared now because all the banking apps have then caught up and you can do that within most banking apps these days. But if I was to go on an e-commerce site and I've got a whole bunch of items in my um, basket that I want to pay for, I could tap pay with bank rather than pay with card. And what would happen is that would then bounce off to whatever bank I'm using. Well, actually, I would have to choose who I'm banking with and you have to be in a list and you hope and pray that your bank is in that list that they've got a, a connection with. If there isn't, you can't pay with them. So that's the end of that. But if they are in that list, you then tap on that. That then bounces to the bank's site. You then, if you're on desktop, you're going to have to log in and go through that login process of online banking, which is pretty horrific on desktop. On mobile, it'll probably bounce to the app that hopefully you got on your phone. It will then go through and double check that the amount's also been paid. You go through and confirm it, go through a second form of authentication, which is like face ID, touch ID, that type of thing, or um, six digit code. Then it will then bounce you back to the website that you're then paying for, and then you'll then check out. 
The problem is that experience, say, per bank varies dramatically. The likes of Starling and Monzo, the more modern kind of neo banks, have done a pretty good job of that process. The older legacy banks have got some work to do that they need to catch up. Um, it's a pretty horrific process. We've done experiments testing that, and you see a huge, huge drop off of people completing that journey when they're using open banking because it's too many steps, too much friction, and it's not a smooth exercise. Paying with your card, it's just a doddle. It's just there. You just look at your phone and, you, and you're done. Um, it needs to become that slick in order for people to really adopt it. Yeah, and it, it, I mean, the UK is kind of held up as this kind of bastion of fintech. You know, the world. You know, London is you know, the fintech capital of the world. But what I'm hearing today a little bit is actually we've not got this right. Do you feel like, you know, because you, you talk about this, you know, the FCA, the regulatory sandbox that we've got as well. But you know, what what have they not got right? You know, what could they do better? How how would you go about, for example, building a framework to actually get these inclusive businesses in there as well, so get inclusion into these products, but to actually build products that the consumer actually needs, you know, at, at the user endpoint? Um, I say, Jared, about you know, so I'll, I'll I'll keep quiet in a minute, but it's there, there was the Khalifa review um, about twelve months ago or so, or maybe a couple of years ago, that has come out with a number of points which hopefully with the with, with CFIT, which is the, the new organization that is basically um, tasked with resolving the issues that are raised in the Khalifa review, that hopefully allow innovation in FinTech to, to thrive and grow within the country. I hope and pray that they have real world tangible outcomes and they actually make a significant difference and hopefully encourage FinTech to be outside of London as well. So that it grows nationally rather than just staying in the city, which is basically where everything is every deal you're doing you're going down to the city to, to to sort it out um that needs to change and we need to remove from the central power and reliance on on just london to using that kind of globally so hopefully that will change it does feel a little bit like the fca are starting to engage and work out what they can do for startups to allow them to navigate the regulatory process um, I think some banks are starting to see, okay, we need to innovate quick. And the only way we can do that is to basically either partner or acquire startups in order to do that um, because they can't move fast enough with their technology. You're seeing banks spin up smaller neo banks that are agile and are smaller to do it. You see Barclays are doing it. Santander have got, got one as well. They're spinning up. Um, they're not necessarily using the, their, their brands to do it, which is really interesting, but there's being up these smaller banks that are built on modern technology and allowing them to innovate much, much faster. So I definitely think we're going to see that happening. And we just need to allow these conversations with the big organizations to happen because we do have the capability of moving incredibly fast. We've got the modern technology. We've got the experience. We've got the desire. We've got the drive to do it. We just need the incumbents to open the door and allow us to work with them and not put so much onerous kind of compliance and checks and everything else and 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 burdens on us to to make these things happen. I appreciate that they also need to de-risk the, 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 the opportunities, um, but also they, they have to take a bit of a chance uh, with what we're doing as well, um, because that's, that's essentially what all the big tech companies are doing as well, and they're going to be left behind if they don't. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Pete. And in fact, on the, the back of Khalif on the back of the Khalifa review, I know in our region here in Birmingham and the Midlands, we were selected as one of the the emerging tech clusters out of out of the review. Um, and so we've got our own kind of network now called Tech West Midlands was Birmingham Tech at the time. Um, and I remember 
being one of the founding directors of Birmingham Tech, and we we tried to build this ecosystem to highlight the tech opportunities in the region. Um, and now that's become Tech West Midlands, and we we've uncovered there's a you know our, our tech sector is worth about fifteen billion pounds. Um, within Tech West Midlands, there's over five thousand member organisations and individuals, and our fintech scene is is growing great guns. Yet on a global narrative scale, it's still the southeast, London. Anything out of London really is the golden triangle of Cambridge, Oxford, or London. Um, Birmingham is now beginning to do its thing. The Midlands is now beginning to do its thing. Northeast have had a great reputation for many years. So I think it's about really highlighting what's going on in regions and then using it as a global narrative to show the world how competitive we are as a UK in this space. Um, I think in addition as well, there needs to be deeper investment into digital skills of the next generation of, of young people. Um, there needs to be certainly much more um, digital skills development within national curriculums, I believe. Um, I also believe financial literacy needs to go alongside that as well. Because, um, you know, I still believe we're, we're generating a, a generation of young people who are still being um, developed to become managers and employees in organisations when most young people I know I talk to and I'm engaged in, you know, in a, in a separate world, I, I chair an employability skills charity and when we talk to our young people, it's very much they want to be business owners. They want to create the startups of the future. They want to be in charge of the future that they are going to have to inherit. Um, and, and so I think the larger organizations need to also consider how well they are partnering with organizations um, on the ground, startups on the ground, who are actually closer to the problem that, that they are trying to solve as, as large organizations. And so you're right, Pete, that collaboration is going to be crucial and key. Um, but there also needs to be an acceptance of the innovation and the wider thinking that entrepreneurs, startups can bring into these larger incumbent environments. Because often there are barriers because change is still going to take forever and a day, right? You know, it's still this kind of oil tanker syndrome with large organizations. And, and so even when they have the answers from the startup community. There is still often barriers to integrating that information, taking it and doing something actionable with it. Um, so yeah, I think just getting on the ground, better collaboration and investing in the future of the workforce, the future environments of, and not being afraid to go into higher risk sectors too, because often that's where a lot of innovation lies. Um, so yeah, totally agree, collaboration is key. Yeah, it's been great to see what Yanis uh, Maos. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, so I say Yanis Maos MBE. So I'm I'm pretty sure an OB trumps an eight an MBE. Is that right? So are you are you are you winning? Full competition, mate. <laughs> we're all doing the we're all doing what we can in our own space. So that's not bad. But yes, so so Yanis founded what is now Tech WM, right? So actually seeing those those ecosystems develop. We were in Newcastle earlier this week with Tech Blast, our second brand. Um, doing a startup pitching competition, a little bit different to FinTech, although there were FinTechs in, in that, really early stage companies. And actually these ecosystems in, in different regions of the UK, you know, they're, they're very tight knit. People do an awful lot for each other and everyone works closely and collaboratively, but sometimes the investment isn't there. Are you guys seeing the kind of support for your relative ecosystems? And we're, you know, based in Manchester and we, we do a lot of events in Manchester as well, so we know it well. But are you seeing the kind of, the out the the 
whether it's the wider support or just the investment side of things, is it, are we missing a bit of a trick, or is London I'll, missing I'll a bit of a trick? I'll be honest with you, John. I I can only speak for our, for our region. I don't know how it is elsewhere, but we still have a massive investment problem when it comes to investing in in growing growing startups. Um, we kind of call it the muggy middle between five hundred thousand to kind of two and a half three million pounds of investment. That's our kind of muggy space where you can't get money for help. You know, for <laughs> it's so difficult. Um, whether it's lending or investment, it's still challenging. A lot of the investment is still held down in the southeast in, in the main. Uh, that being said, um, I think the mentality of the Midlands is very much, okay, fine, what have I got or what can I use? Um, and I'm seeing that mentality, to be fair, across other regions too, where we're seeing greater collaborations and doing joint applications for funding or... Um, creating opportunities to bring in supply networks that enable you to reduce costs in your own business and so forth. And so we've seen a much more collaborative approach to plug the funding gaps that, that we see in our businesses. For FinTech in particular, I think there's be, there's become an increasing interest in what's coming out of our region in, in terms of the opportunities. We're seeing much more collaboration with our FinTechs and with, um, corporate organizations, the larger incumbents, we are seeing much more things happening in that regard. Um, but in terms of direct money and investment into businesses, it's still a challenge. And that challenge becomes even harder when you go into various different diversity characteristics as well. I was just interested to know in terms of this funding point and it being so tricky, obviously you're, you've both recently ranked very highly within the FinTech 50. I'm just wondering what kind of importance you think the marketing and comms aspects have um, to help with that um, attracting funding. Yeah, it definitely, you know, going through the process, it, it definitely highlighted how important having just being, even if they people don't know you deeply or know you well, just having a, just people recognizing your name goes a long way. Um, it breaks down that that barrier it kind of, in some ways, is a bit like a warm intro. Um, and it definitely reduces the initial conversation in kind of people more likely to, to look at your deck than than not. So having good PR and good marketing has, has definitely been a strategy for us when we were going through our our raising. Is that we yeah we need to um, be seen a lot more, be a, be a lot more visible. Um, it is. I mean, also, also Joe, you've been through it yourself. Fundraising is a full time job. You, you can't work in your business while you're fundraising. Twenty twenty three has been dire for fundraising it's just been awful um the entire market has just just stopped investing which could mean that 24 is going to be great because there's a whole ton of money that needs to be deployed um we'll see it'll be very very interesting to see what happens and uh, particularly obviously with the state of, of of the cost of living and interest rates and everything else whether or not um the money does get deployed and also funds are having a hard time raising their own money so if they can't raise money then there's nothing to deploy um so it's going to be interesting but having we, we, we were we had very fortunate um circumstances where i was in america for three months at the start of the year um and being in their ecosystem and understanding how they do investment and then seeing how basically it's the complete opposite to how we do it over here and how we need to change in this country in our attitude to risk and investment um in order to really drive innovation um it's great to see that the angel scene in, 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 in the UK has definitely improved. It's definitely become a much bigger area. People are much more willing to invest in, in startups and ideas. It's, we need 
VCs really to kind of put the money where the mouth is um, and to really start. They, they, there's You see VCs that are saying that they're early investors in businesses and then you kind of go through the process. You're kind of like, mm, okay, you're going to be involved at Series A. That's not early. That There's a massive gap between seed and Series A or pre-seed and Series A. That gap is survival and you you hope you make it and you try and scrimp and scrape and you, and you save money where you can to try and get to Series A. And there's a, an abundance of VCs waiting for you to, to be involved at that point. But getting there is very, very hard and even harder in fintech when you've got this barrier to entry on, on the rest of the market and you need capital in order to do it. Um, so hopefully the scene comes back in in 24. Um, there's definitely been a shift, particularly over the last few years, of you need to have a path to being profitable. You can't just grow at all costs and just have high revenue and huge costs. You need to be able to at least demonstrate you're going to be profitable pretty soon. Um, and that definitely started with, I probably even started two or three years ago, just before the pandemic, where WeWork's IPO collapsed and people started getting really kind of fidgety on, okay, you, you, we need to see some substance in these businesses rather than just kind of some flashy revenue figures and, and it costing you four times the amount that you actually revenue you get or whatever it is. So um, yeah, the scene's definitely changed. You'd need to be profitable soon or at least to have that path and have a realistic model to be get, to get in there pretty quickly. Um, and you can't just burn money for the sake of it as well. So the the growth, the, the idea of growth at all costs is definitely, I think, gone. Even in Silicon Valley, that's gone. Um, so it's definitely much more of a, how how is your business sustainable? And you need to have an option of, actually, I don't want, I don't need investment to grow. I need to, well, it may be growth slower if you're just doing it yourself, but having, being profitable quick then gives you control of your own destiny as well. Um, so you just need to, you need to, think beyond just going speaking to VCs and, and kind of begging for money. Um, you need to, you need to have an, an, an alternative plan. Yeah. You, sorry, Joe, go on. I was just going to say just with, with marketing and comms, I think that has been again, similar to Pete crucial part of our growth strategy as a business. Um, I'm not saying we've gone in for every single award under the sun, but we certainly have been tactical in terms of where we want to associate our brand um, as part of our, our growth plans. Um, and, and what it has done for us, it's enabled us to really highlight our niche within a very competitive area and given us the opportunity to use that as a platform to have the right type of conversations whilst um, doubling down on product because of, again, some of the reasons Pete said in terms of growth or costs, it just doesn't work anymore. So, but being profitable is absolutely key, but taking a hit on your profits in in return for really refining your product and really integrating customer feedback into the product design more than the need to be super profitable has been our kind of really focused and PR and comms has helped us to do that because, because we know our niche, because we've been recognized for our niche, doubling down on products in our niche is then creating a moat around our business. And so we know the larger profitability will come down the line as long as we never forget that, we, that we're building a product to solve a problem. And if our customers are not our first port of call with understanding that problem, then we'll never achieve profitability at the levels that we know we will um, over time. So PR and comms has been a, 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 a marketing has been a massive part of making sure we get that balance right in, in terms of where we are in the market, how we're perceived, what we're delivering, 
but making sure we're developing, continually developing a product that is meeting the direct need of our target market. Um, knowing that, you know, at some point, the inflection point will come where this is a different conversation and we're in a different space. Um, mm. And we just work towards that, that point and we know what that point is and we, we, we will get there. Amen to that. <laughs> you sound like you'd be a great client to work with, to be honest. I mean, one of the, gosh, the competitive nature of the fintech scene, you know, just necessitates that, you know, real focus on finding a niche niche and communicating that well. That is what we talk to all of our fintech clients about, sure. And I think what's, it's, what sounds lovely about what you're saying is actually that you're recognising the importance of doing that as a business, almost maybe a bit behind the scenes before you start going out there and, and shouting about everything on, on on an external basis through PR, which of course you want to do as quickly as possible and start doing that. But if you don't get it right, first of all, get that kind of storytelling right, get that messaging right, understand across your business, across all of your senior teams, they're all talking on the same on the same sort of page, on the same through the same red thread about how you tell your story and you know what your specific niche is versus everyone else who's out there. If you don't get that right internally first, then um, the external benefits won't be as great when they come. Absolutely, I think what it also does though it attracts um, supporters and collaborators in ways and in areas that you didn't know as well, and that's been a a, a huge benefit that we didn't really. Cater, I mean, obviously you always want that, but you, you don't, we certainly didn't cater for that as a strategic part of our plan. We would just hope that we would meet right partners and meet good collaborators at different points, but it's actually increasingly become something that's really helped to drive the value of our business in terms of who we've attracted to our board, the types of partnerships we've now created and all towards this inflection point of of change that, that we know is on the horizon, but we didn't expect that level of partnership and collaboration and support, but it was directly because of the marketing and PR and comms that enabled us to, to, to access that type of support as a very early FinTech um, in, in the space. I think that's fantastic. I mean, yeah, PR doesn't all have to be about, um, you know, coverage on the page, a lot of it is, and, and rightly so, but yeah, that's absolutely right, that PR and comms should support on building out those networks and, mm. you know, crafting your overall reputation as a as a company. I think often what we found with a lot of the early stage companies, when we had this pitching competition in, in Newcastle, for example, and uh, we've done similar ones in, in Manchester and elsewhere, it, un, until you've raised investment, quite a lot of time, you're quite invisible, people aren't aware of your company you know you're not on on Crunchbase or, or Pitchbook or wherever and you don't have the you know you're working on your business or working in your business should I say and you're not you know you're not telling that tale you know like you say you're getting your product right so you might you know, when it comes to that that big client meeting that potential flagship client or, or you know that investor that could make a difference and provide that funding that you need to grow actually I can't find anything about this company so it's it's a big you know, like Pete said, you you might you might not even, you know, get your your sort of pitch looked at, your pitch that looked at. Whereas if you if you've got that marketing and you're sort of turning those wheels already, you know, like yeah, going on the FinTech 50, for example, it's not all, not all about business cloud and the FinTech 50. But I know Pete, I don't know if you can talk about this, Pete, <laughs> and we'll be editing this podcast if you can't. But you're gonna be on a on a LinkedIn docu-series, or is that already aired? It's already come out, came out in October. And I didn't watch it. I apologize. I'll, I'll seek it out. So that was the. <laughs> so that was specifically was it UK fintechs going in or UK companies going into America? Is that right? Featured yeah, it was. By LinkedIn. 
Yeah, it was DFT um, was doing a LinkedIn series of British companies trying to break America, basically. Um, and it was a series of, I remember, uh, six companies uh, were going through. Um, and yeah, and our kind of journey to trying to um, basically export our, our, our company to, to America, which we, we launched in America just over 12 months ago now, actually. Um, and I've seen that grow tremendously over the past 12 months. And it's a really successful region for us but it's been incredibly hard as uh, anyone who's tried to go to america it can be a bit of a cesspit of where money just disappears um and it just gets burnt and you just get nothing in return um and you obviously have to treat america as, as, as each of the 50 different states it's not one country it's it's a, a bunch of smaller countries that you then have to approach differently and then you've got regular um regulatory issues against all those states plus on a, on a national level as well on a state level and, and on the thing else so it's it's difficult it's really hard um and trying to break even to a small part of that 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 country one can absolutely change your company overnight uh but two can cost you an absolute fortune and it's not easy to do you need to set up american entities you need to make sure if you're going to get investment from america do they want you to to, to flip and do you become an american company overnight or you're going to stay british how are you going to do that how are you going to sort out how you can make sure that your UK investors, they still get all the benefits they need to as investors and nothing else. When you flip, if you do need to flip to America, we haven't. Uh, thank we've got investors from the States that um didn't they didn't ask for us to to, to flip to to the US, thankfully. But um yeah, that that process was fantastic. That was also part of the um the Techstars program that we were a part of during uh, actually this time last year. We'd we just flown out to the to the US to New York. For three months to to spend as part of Techstars New York, which was an absolute whirlwind experience. Um, one of the best parts, uh, probably of not just the, the collective journey, but my my whole career of experiencing that and being properly thrown in the deep end. And you've got to you either sink or swim. Um, and it's everyone is thrown at you. You get to meet some phenomenal people that you would never have met ever before. Um, to the point where I, I have the phone number for the, the the former director of Uber Eats, the guy who created Uber Eats, $30 billion business is on my phone. You're like, you don't get those contacts usually, you just don't get that. Um, and that's the type of accelerators that we need in this country. We're kind of, kind of starting to see that happen now, which is great. Um, but it's not the money that those accelerators invest in you that's that's worth it because it's actually quite expensive um, to, to do that. But it, it's the connections, it's the doors they open are far more valuable than any investment that they, they could give you so yeah it's it was um an awesome experience to to be out in the states and kind of live in new york if that makes sense for, for a bit um rather than just being the tourist to go to new york um and really understand what makes america tick and in particular the the, the east coast uh, from that side of things so yeah it was it was a great great kind of experience of being on the show um a really interesting because honestly it's kind of behind the scenes how it all works as well which is kind of fascinating yeah, and Amy's or your co-founder Amy's not shy to say that you struggled to get onto the Techstars oh, or no. accelerator in London, <laughs> so you had to go to New York. Yeah, it kind I'm of paints that paints the picture, doesn't it? <laughs> and that's it. It's a real shame, and that's a genuine real shame. We we're, we're a British business, and we want to be British, but we've had to fly five thousand miles in order to get significant kind of traction and investment and everything else in order to do it because it's just a better market out there for for our for us anyway and other other sectors obviously that work brilliantly within the uk um but yeah we applied to techstars london twice failed twice um applied to techstars new york on the last day of the application on just kind of a bit like yeah let's give it a go got in and you just and i mean there's there's 
three or four interviews past that kind of initial application process to get through but to to get into new york and thinking about it um kind of afterwards i don't think if we if we'd have gone to textiles london we'd have had the impact that we've got out of textiles new york if that makes sense um because essentially i we basically moved out to new york for for that period of time and but so thankful to, to my wife for looking after my children. I basically just ran away for three months. So forever in debt for for for, for her to looking after my kids and, and keeping everything ticking this side. Um but being down in, in if we were in London, for example, I probably would have just been spent down the week down in London and back home during the weekends, that type of thing. So wouldn't necessarily have been immersed, if that makes sense, in that culture. Um and really kind of on it 24-7. And it was that for three months. It was you are working on the business 24-7. Plus, trying to have all these um, these meeting these network events and everything else, and trying to um, try to be a translator of of British culture in America and American culture into Britain and everything else. So, uh, yeah, it was I was exhausted and a lot heavier after that three months. They they they've got Mister Bean in America. They know all about our culture. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, think, I didn't realize how southern I was until I went to America and my proper full um i mean i live up north i'll still say bath and path and grass uh, i was born born down south grew up in devon so then i went to america and they just turbocharged my accent just went completely british and very very kind of queen's english it was terrible joe are you from birmingham originally or yeah yeah, yeah mate, so. <laughs> <laughs> I, I went to university in birmingham so i know all about the Brummie accent <laughs> yeah i'm, I'm... Born and bred in Birmingham. It's funny because when I talk to other Brummies, I realise my accent isn't as broad as theirs. But anytime I come out of Birmingham, it's like, that's how Birmingham speak. I'm like, you've not really been to Birmingham, mate. <laughs> you really just play, play football in Wolverhampton and that that was an experience. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of rivalry for sure there yeah, for football. I think we need to, to kind of wrap it up by looking at the, the sort of challenges and opportunities for next year. So I know Pete's already said about hopefully some of that that capital that's not flowing at the moment may, may be flowing. Joe, what do you kind of see as the challenges and opportunities for next year? Well, it's interesting enough. It, you know, we mentioned earlier about banking and, and banking was always our first goal to market. You know, they've got the data, the volume, the the, the scale. But um, we we designed the business as a sector agnostic platform from the beginning. So challenge for us is just moving into, into adjacent markets, really. And we started a lot of that work earlier this year. Um, We've built some some traction in some of those new newer markets, so it's really just scale, really, and just building those collaborative partnerships in those those newer areas. Um, our, our technology is robust; it's secure. We know it will deliver. We've generated revenue, so we, we we're confident of what we what we have in the market. But it's about just making sure now we land it in these additional spaces and do it in the right time frame that we want to. Um, we scale in the right way, and we will work towards our kind of key KPIs within our business. I'm as much as I'm an I'll tell I'm an entrepreneur now, I never really planned to be. I actually wanted to be an accountant when I was in school. Yeah, a whole different conversation. Um, that, that's but, a phrase I don't hear often. I wanted to be an accountant <laughs> when I was in school. <laughs> uh, so I'm very analytical about numbers generally. Um, and so the the kind of um, foundational side of my personality is very much, yeah, great. You could do all the fancy entrepreneurial stuff, but what do the numbers say? Um, I'm driven by... The kind of the performance and the KPIs and make sure we deliver. So just making sure we balance that with with our, our strategies moving forward. So that's going to probably be our, our, our challenge. I think also as well, it's just building out our team. Um, you know, I built the business on a very, very lean operation on purpose. 
I wanted to make sure we had a product that could really bang in the market. We, we're, we're doing that. So it's just building out the team, really, just to kind of, again, build out some of that robustness around around myself and, and our existing team. But getting good talent is always difficult. Um, and, and, and you know, I'm sure as, as Pete and the rest of you have all seen, getting access to good talent is one thing. Retaining great talent is another. Um, and so just making sure that we're, we're finding good people to bring into the business is going to be important. And finally, so was capital. You know, we are... We are looking to raise ourselves from the new year um, in terms of moving to our next next stage of growth. So, you know, I'm preparing for that full-time job of, of doing that um, from, from my angle. Um, but I'm really confident about what we have. And I know that if we don't, we can still deliver a great business. We just want to deliver an even greater business with the right type of support. So raising capital is going to be part of that journey for us as well. So, so, Pete, you're going to have another three-month holiday in, in New York, no doubt. Well, <laughs> yeah, I would love to have another three-month holiday in your poor, New York. Wife, your long-suffering wife. But what 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 challenges and opportunities do you see for your business or or, or the wider sector next year? Yeah, as I mean, as we we we've moved towards a, a path to being profitable on that side of things, and not reliant on on investment um, to to do that, and we we're, we're achieving that, which is great. So we need to obviously continue that that path. Um, one of the main things for us is, is around our culture, making sure that as we grow and scale, the culture stays tight. Um, we talked about the marketing later on, uh, earlier on, and, and our, our marketing really is an extension of our culture, uh, of what we do internally. And we're kind of just showing everyone what our culture is publicly uh, from that side of things. And we interview based on that culture as well as make sure that, that they're a good fit in the business as well within that. So it's definitely, that's obviously a, a big challenge for us. We're launching a bunch of new products as well very very soon for the the b2b sector to, to allow group payments for b2b as well so those challenges of, of growing that side of the part of the business along there and um, we've got a few big names hopefully that will that'll be using us pretty soon so there's all these challenges as you know which is growing as a business and stuff and you start um working with the bigger players they obviously bring unique challenges and and opportunities as well that you need to need to kind of grab hold of and and, and run with so that'll be the the big thing for us um post christmas what we got this is one of our peak seasons right now a kind of end of term where everyone's everyone's kind of supporting all, all the teachers and getting teacher gifts and stuff all the parents and things such as that and christmas parties and uh, everyone booking holidays and stuff like that, that tends to be happening right about now so post that um then yeah the new year is 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 there's a lot going on in you it tends to be that january is our quiet month but i can't see it being quiet for us uh, this year there's so much that we've got going on that um it's exciting there's a, there's a lot going on just need to make sure we scale well over, over the next kind of 12 18 months what do you see for next year zoe like on a on a more macro level yeah i mean i think we're all crystal clear about the um the macro context in which we're you know all sitting you know all the various global challenges we're all facing so probably don't need to say too much about that there's some obvious challenges aren't there that we're all facing but I think it's exciting times I think among you know at, at difficult times often that's when the biggest innovations come through so who knows what we're going to see next year and how it's going to go uh, personally at Taito it's exciting times for us because we um, have actually um I've actually just returned to the business out of, after a year out um, on maternity leave and I come back to find the business ever bigger than it was before with Taito having acquired two small organisations while I've been away in the last year. So we now actually cover um, seven countries around Europe. So the exciting thing for us is to bed in our, our new team members um, among and in different um, parts of the world and different parts of Europe um, and look to sort of 
uh, expand out our offering in those markets as well. Of course, at the same time as um, supporting all our existing clients on what they would like to achieve next year. Obviously, it's that kind of turn of the year time where we're thinking about, you know, what should our plans and ambitions be for 2024? So that's what's on the cards for us. I mean, Taito does all kinds of interesting things. You've got the the Taito Tech 500. You know, very kindly, I was among the, the 50 most influential people in UK tech. Thank you. Based on data, apparently. But uh, yeah. but yeah, no, it's uh, it's a great organization. It's not just about yeah, we, we take doing our press releases, is it, right? You, yeah. you take that time to do that research and to produce those products. Exactly. Yeah, we take we we take quite a thoughtful approach to to PR and and comms. I mean, just as as Joel was saying earlier, you know, we like to start with sort of thinking about what the business needs internally. What is the actual business objective that um, our clients are actually looking to achieve, and then we design the PR and comms strategy around that, so that you know to try and make it as measurable as possible. We we love getting clients top tier top level coverage in in lots of different types of publications but we're very much not about just pr for pr's sake or coverage for coverage sake you know there's a there's a real aim and ambition behind it and yet in that sense we also take quite a data-driven approach so you mentioned the Taito tech 500 which is um a um ranking of who we see as the most influential people in tech in each different country and we do that each year and it's based on a very robust methodology rather than it being subjective it's all algorithm driven um and yeah we've uh, just just launched this year so you can find out more about that for sure on our website and john you're obviously very highly ranked up there so well done on that this year thank you very much pete where can we can you we, can we watch the um you know the linkedin docu-series is that available yeah it is it's on uh linkedin and it's also on our i think it's on our linkedin page as well and on our on our website we've got a link in there on our blog but yeah feel free it's it's free to watch from anyone just you just need it uh, it's on youtube as well i think correct. brilliant fabulous that's my uh that's my weekend sorted <laughs> <laughs> listen it's been an absolute pleasure we've run out of time i think we've, we've we've talked so much about this you know the state of uk fintech you know where it's going you know the challenges you know i think it's important to have these honest conversations not just to say you know uk fintech is great look at the investment you know from you know two years ago actually there's a practical thing here where we're looking at companies that are that are scaling companies that are trying to work with inc incumbent players like joel trying to work with the banks um and i think yeah it's really important to to kind of embrace that innovation that's coming from the grassroots if, for want of a better word um so yeah thanks thanks so, so much guys yeah thank you oh thank you yeah thanks very much if you've got any feedback on today's episode scribble it down on linkedin x or youtube or drop us an email at podcasts at businesscloud.co.uk if you enjoyed the episode and found it useful please like and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform to be among the first to hear insights from renowned uk technologists and entrepreneurs thanks for listening and see you soon Demystifying Tech is a Business Cloud podcast produced in partnership with pan-European B2B tech PR and communications agency Taito. New episodes are streamed on Business Cloud's YouTube, LinkedIn and Twitter pages from 12pm on the second Friday of every month, while you can find all episodes on YouTube and all major audio podcast platforms. Subscribe now so you never miss an episode.